1: Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to today's program here at the New Southern Garden. Of course, I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and I'm very glad, as always, that you've decided to join us for this hour of any kind of gardening topic that we want to talk about, because in the garden there, there's a lot to talk about. I know that some programs, some gardening programs are, you know, mainly going to be given during the spring, maybe late winter through spring, summer, early fall, and they just cut away in wintertime, but of course, New Southern Garden continues all year long here on your hometown radio, WRWH, 93.9 FM, and we're so glad to be a part of this Saturday lineup so that you can hopefully become inspired to try something new do something different in the landscape. Maybe I've mentioned some new plants that you have been unaware of. Or maybe I reminded you of some older plants that you had forgotten about. Well, either way, we're going to try new things. All year long. And of course, this time of year, things are rocking and rolling in the landscape i don't know about you but i will say it has been hot it feels like well i guess it is pre-summer some of the weather folks are saying we're already in summer we're already in summer and i'm like goodness gracious we're just halfway through may and the temperatures have been hot but you remember golly don't you remember a few weeks ago when we were not quite in spring, but it felt like spring. Late February, early March, things were feeling like spring. And a little later today, I'm gonna to talk about some of, a particular, let me just, I'm gonna talk about a particular plant that you may have noticed even in your own landscape. It succumbed to the effects of the late winter freeze. For a few weeks, we were feeling like spring in late winter. And then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it really turned into winter again. And you may recall, because we talked about it when it happened, <laughs> around the 20th of March, I believe, we had those 20-degree temperatures. And guess what, folks? We are starting to see some of the effects. Some of the effects of what a late winter freeze, frost, combination of both, will do to certain plants in the garden. As a matter of fact, a little later, we're going to talk about a certain plant, like I said, that many folks have been sending me pictures of, phone calls at the nursery, emails, Facebook messages, person to person, in person, bringing their photos to me or telling me about this particular plant. It's one that we all love. It's one that signifies gardening in the South or has become sort of a a signature plant in the southern garden and this winter it sounds like most everybody had some kind of damage on this particular plant. So be sure to hold on to that thought and we will come around to it because today I wanted to uh, sort of talk a bit about some things in my garden again some things in the vegetable garden in particular. I know last week I informed you of some wonderful plants that were blooming in my landscape and I thought I'd talk about some of the things we're doing in our vegetable garden and sort of give you a progress report, if you will, because I, I don't do that very often. But this year, this year, we have planted the largest, the largest vegetable garden that I have ever planted before. As a matter of fact, I will admit that it's still in progress of being planted because it's so big, it's just uh, just me and my cousins who are helping me and so you know we've got jobs we've got other things to do my cousins are actually building a house and so busy 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 and usually in the evenings after work i'm able to go into the vegetable garden and wear myself out even more than uh, my regular day job had worn me out but it is rewarding it is rewarding and it is a very enjoyable uh, process to go through so if you have never, maybe you're listening to this program, and you've never planted any kind of vegetables, well, I would encourage you to, because even though it takes a lot of work, yes, you will be tired, the reality is that it's a good tired. It's a I hate to repeat myself, a rewarding tired tiredness, and it's something that of course, at the end of the season, you'll get tomatoes from. <laughs> what is that saying? You know, gardening is cheaper than therapy, and you get tomatoes. So there are definitely many benefits to being in the garden, both physically and, of course, uh, nutritionally and maybe, you know, spiritually. As far as lifting up your spirits, The beautiful flowers can bring you encouragement. I will say one benefit of being outside And being in the garden that is beneficial, that you probably never think of, is when you're outside gardening, and if you do this from time to time or quite often frequently, you will never, I guarantee you, you will never have to take a vitamin D tablet. (laughs) As a matter of fact, one time I went to my doctor and he's going down the chart, you know, uh, looking at the blood work, giving me the report. And his eyes get really big when he goes to vitamin D. He says, whoa, okay. He said, you've got plenty of vitamin D. As a matter of fact, we could harvest it from you and bottle it. There's so much. So the more time you spend in the sun, the more vitamin D your body produces, and you won't be deficient in vitamin D. So there are many benefits. Now, as far as my vegetable garden goes, I want to tell you, like I said, it's the biggest, it's the biggest garden that I've ever had And it's a bit overwhelming, I'm going to admit. It's a bit overwhelming because even though I've gotten more than half of it planted, I still feel like we've got a long way to go. As a matter of fact, here's what happened. Uh, My cousin has a tractor. He brought it over to our place, and he's uh, chopping up the soil. I should use the correct terminology. He plowed the soil, and then he uh, tilled the soil. And then I've got a hand tiller that I come back with and till the soil again to make it nice and fluffy and make sure weeds are destroyed before we plant so we're planting sections. We have some tomato plants. We have some pepper plants. That's where I started. Planting rows of tomatoes, which now number well above 70. And rows of peppers, which I sort of lost count, but it's not nearly 70 because we love tomatoes and we partially love Of course, peppers and tomatoes are in the same family. They have some of the same care, some of the same diseases, uh, some of the same insect problems. And so they make great partners in in the garden because their care and their needs are similar. But of course, they partner well in the kitchen when you're bringing in your fruits and you're making salsa, for instance. And so we've got plenty of those plants. So we started there. And then after we got those rows in... Tomatoes and peppers. I was looking around, and I was like, oh, no, we don't have enough space. We don't have enough space for the bean and the corn. Uh, And, of course, there's other things. And so we went and plowed a new section of garden, uh, not too far away, but still a, a section that's at least 100 by 50 or 60 feet. It's huge for me. It feels huge. I know there's gardeners out there who have even more and larger vegetable gardens. But for me, it's the first biggest garden I've ever had. And so we've got that huge section up there, in my eyes, it's huge, uh, of beans and corn. And, of course, they're going to partner well together, too, in the long term. Because, you see, corn is a heavy feeder. And corn is going to require copious amounts of nitrogen. Now, on the other hand, beans are light feeders they actually will use nitrogen out of the air out of the atmosphere fix it into their roots through the help of bacteria and they will use the nitrogen the atmospheric nitrogen to grow themselves so you don't have to apply heavy nitrogen on your beans and so if you leave of course those stems and those things behind uh, and and maybe even some of the root systems They will be adding to the nitrogen in the soil, and what will happen is next year, if you plant your corn where your beans were, you will have some nitrogen for the corn to use since it's such a heavy feeder. So, these are great companion plants, and of course, crop rotation, moving these things around year after year is going to help... uh, lighten up any disease pressure but also they may help to feed each other from year to year okay so back to the other plot where the tomatoes and peppers are we have a large section that is different kinds of melons we have some honeydew we have some maybe three different watermelons I know there's one called strawberry and there's the uh, bush sugar 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 what is that one sugar Sugar baby, bush sugar baby, that's it, the bush sugar baby, which are those nice, round, um, dark green melons. They are bush type, which means they don't run and use as much space. So if you want to do something like melons in a small space or maybe even in a container, you can use and grow those bush type Of course, there are bush-type beans, there are bush-type squashes and zucchinis, and there are bush-type watermelons. Almost everything you can find a a bush-type, which just means that they don't get out of hand as far as size goes because most standard watermelon, or any melon for that matter, can take six to eight feet of space, maybe more. And so you've got to space, generally, these watermelons far apart. So that's how they are in my garden Uh, in our vegetable plot, is they are on hills and they're spaced far apart except for the bush type. The bush type are in three-foot rows and will be spaced about three-foot apart. As soon as they get done popping up, we'll thin them out to three-foot spacing between plants, and they'll have plenty of space and really not take over (laughs) the garden. So then in that area, I also planted some popcorn, and I'll tell you why. I love popcorn because, of course, uh, my grandfather grew it and my grandmother, and we would, on summer days, they had some dried out, probably from the year before even, because it stores well if it stays dry, and we would pop our own popcorn. I tell you, folks, that was some of the best-tasting popcorn I've ever had. You know, forget the Orville Redenbacher, whatever his name is, or the Act One, you know, pop it in the microwave. This homegrown, fresh popcorn is so delicious, and also my little two-year-old, Eden Rose, absolutely loves it. She loves popcorn. We have it as a snack before bed sometimes. Wonderful snack because it keeps them entertained, right? But anyhow, so the popcorn is there, and then there is the glass gem corn, which is sort of an Indian corn that is just coated with all different color kernels. You've got blues and pinks and whites, and they're pearly like glass gems. Great name for that corn. So we got the corn. We've got some edamame because I'd never really thought about edamame, but somebody fixed some for me one time and it was delicious. It was it was a very good. Of course, edamame is a soybean. It's a soybean, and it grows uh, very well, like any other bean. You don't have to feed it much. And you do have those hairy hairy, hairy pods, <laughs> which uh, I don't know. There's many different ways to cook it, but it's a unique bean, and you may want to give that a try sometime. And some Cherokee wax bean, which is a nice, very heirloom bean. It's a yellow bean, and it's a bush style. Then, of course, we've added more tomatoes along the way and squashes, cucumbers, zucchini. I've got plenty more to plant. (laughs) I've got plenty more to plant. So last week I updated you on my space at our garden, what was blooming, what was going on. And I thought that this week I would talk about the vegetable garden to let you know some of the specific varieties uh, with our corn and bean plot that's set aside. I should have mentioned we've got... um, Blue Lake bush bean, Blue Lake bush bean. That way we have a nice compact plant and we're not worried so much about staking the beans. You know, my grandfather, of course, he always grew white half runners, white half runner beans. Great bean, by the way. You do have to string them. Uh, But with the Blue Lake bush bean, it tastes good. And if you pick them young enough, you can just snap them without a string. Oh, and the corn. We have silver queen and peaches and cream. So those are some great sweet corns to try out. Uh, we do have to take a quick break. So thanks for indulging me in my garden, my vegetable garden. When we get back, I'm going to talk about that plant that really needed some protection this winter. Hang on tight. Now You know, during the break, I was thinking about something that I failed to mention to you. Uh, before the break, I was talking about some of the, the, the vegetables that I was am growing in our vegetable garden. Of course, we talked about tomatoes and peppers, uh, Blue Lake bush beans, sil- silver queen corn, peaches and cream corn, the popcorn, and even that bush type watermelon. But there's a great, well it's not really a squash, I guess it's a melon, it's called banana melon. Now remember, the melons, the watermelon, the honeydew, the, what's the other one? The cantaloupe. All of these things are very closely related to the gourds, the pumpkins, the cucumbers, the squashes, and the zucchinis. They're on the same plant family that we call cucurbits, commonly. And there is this very strange melon. It's a sweet melon. It's not savory like the zucchini and the cucumbers and the squashes, but it is a sweet melon, and it has this elongated shape, this banana melon. I mean, sort of like a banana, but not really. But anyhow, it's not the shape that this, plant, uh, this melon gets its name from. It's more of the flavor. You see, the, the inside, the flesh of the melon tastes reminiscent of bananas and sort of a citrusy spicy little bit of spice in there. And so I have attempted to grow this <laughs> for many years not too successfully. But I know this is the year that the banana The banana melon is going to thrive, and it's going to be delicious. I don't know what we're going to do with them. I have maybe six hills, so six potential plants. We'll see how many each uh, vine produces. But regardless, these are supposed to be huge melons, maybe up to two and three feet long. And they're, like I said, very narrow, sort of like a squash shape, if you will. But again... It uh, has a banana-like fragrance, and of course, the texture will be a lot like a cantaloupe. So, if you're interested in any of those kind of strange and bizarre vegetables, I always refer, folks, to Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Of course, they're online, rareseeds.com. We don't advertise for them, (laughs) but they are a great source for old-fashioned and what I call uh, cultural seeds because that company goes out into different pockets and regions of the world and all different countries and tribes and villages and finds unique uh, and commonly grown vegetables in those communities and try to save the seed, regrow the seed and then make it available to folks in other parts of the world so we can try new things or if you want to breed your own vegetables and cross them with something unique or different uh, they've got a great source of seed at Baker Creek Heirloom Seeds. Now, Let's get out of the vegetable garden for a little bit because, you know, I think a few weeks ago I mentioned this plant that did get a very bad case of winter damage from our late winter freeze that happened sometime around March 20th. But I continue to get phone calls, continue to get messages and emails, all these folks coming to the nursery uh, looking for me, asking why their plant is looking bad. This plant is, like I said, at the first uh, during the first segment. this plant has really become a staple in the South because it does like warm weather, and we are sort of at the most northern point uh, to grow this plant. Of course, I'm referring to the gardenia. The gardenia, Gardenia jasminoides. We're going to talk about plant names a little later on and if they're important or not. Uh, But the gardenia is that evergreen shrub, dark, glossy green leaves that persist all winter, and the flowers bloom in the summer with those rosy-like, pure white, maybe ivory white, Blossoms that you know are open Because you will smell them They're super fragrant They smell like jasmine Um, I think that's another name actually is Cape Jasmine Cape Jasmine, we call it gardenia So here's the trouble Back in February And early part of March We had some really nice Spring-like weather I mean folks remember We were in the 70s, pushing 80s almost And then We had a very cold snap that dropped us below freezing uh, for at least overnight, maybe into the early hours of the morning. I know we got very close to 20. Uh, down in our area but some folks further north of us were down in the in the high teens and so those gardenia plants had had a couple of weeks three weeks four weeks maybe of really nice weather that their sap could start flowing uh, coming up out of the earth out of the roots (laughs) into uh, the stems and they were getting into growth mode Those gardenias, they were getting into growth mode because they had very nice temperatures. And like I said, we still are sort of on the northernmost uh, border for growing gardenias. And with that in mind, as soon as that sap started rising, they started growing, well, getting ready to grow. Then we had the freeze. And we may not have noticed it overnight, but we're starting to continue, really, to see effects of that freeze because you may notice if you have some gardenias now this is particularly particularly the smaller gardenias uh, meaning the dwarf varieties something like radicans or frost proof Um, there is a new one fairly new one out called jubilation you may see still some yellowing leaves some browning leaves some naked stems stems without leaves because those leaves have been damaged and have fallen off of the plant and so, what can we do about it? Is the plant dead? Is it alive? I still feel pretty confident that we probably didn't lose many. Maybe you lost one or two. Uh, but if you aren't sure, here's what we need to do to test to see if our gardenias are still alive. Number one, we want to do a scratch test. If there's no leaves on the plant, then it's questionable if the plant is still alive, Right? But if there are leaves, if there are leaves, you can be probably rest assured there's still some life in that plant. But without leaves, we want to take our maybe fingernail or a small blade, a knife or something, uh, and work our way down the stem making tiny little scratches right underneath the bark. Now, the bark is going to be brown. It's going to be very dark. But right underneath the bark, there should be bright green maybe some white inside of the bark. So you don't have to cut it all the way through. Just make sure you sort of scratch along the stem, starting at the tip, and if there's no brown at the tip, work your way down a few inches. Continue to scratch one more time. If there's no green and uh, bright white there, then work your way down even further until you hit green. If you hit green then you know you have life, somewhere down below but if you continually all the way down these branches are finding that under the bark it is brown then that branch is probably dead so keep doing that on several branches and see how much life may be there because even though the uh, gardenia may have tried to grow the green in the le- i mean sorry the the leaves may have started to green up uh, before that frost that freeze uh The leaf may have succumbed to the cold, but the branch is hardier than the leaf. The branch can handle more cold weather than the leaves can. And so you might find that there's still life in these sad-looking gardenias, um, and we need to do something to stimulate them to regrow, to put out new leaves. And here's what we need to do to correct this. So if you find that your gardenias are not too damaged but are still looking pretty good underneath the bark, we do want to trim them. So you can lightly trim the tips. If you want to uh, shrink the plant down by any amount, you can cut it as far as you like. But on the same day, and you could do this today, that you're pruning any of these damaged plants, go ahead and fertilize them. Because those two activities, as I've mentioned to you before, the activity of pruning a plant, cutting off the little heads of the plant, if you will, and also fertilizing with a higher nitrogen slow release fertilizer those two things are going to stimulate the plant it's going to tell the plant to start putting out more leaves and new branches so that it can regrow get bushy uh, and get back to where it once was before the cold spell so that's the sad plant that got hit by our winter damage but when we get back from this break i would do want to talk about plant names and why they're important so hang on tight
0: For the world to behold.
1: Well, gang, welcome back to the second half of New Southern Garden. Of course, we're heading into the second half of May. It seems like the spring is going by fast and the extra uh, hot air temperatures that we've been having, feeling like summer. They have not helped making things feel like spring. It still is feeling like summer. I mean, every day at the nursery, of course, you can find me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia. Nothing's Every day at the nursery has just been hot And it's fairly dry Because we haven't had consistent day. rain uh, In our area at least Seems like it's the rain we've gotten Has been a bit localized So we're finding You know we're finding rain here and there But not everywhere all the time <laughs> So we'll get through it We'll get through the second half of May Like the second half of the show Because I do eventually want to get to um, Talking about plant names and why they're important, what you need to think about when you're calling plants certain things. Um, Anyhow, we're going to get to that. But uh, I do want to share with you, I have a new button here. And it's going to be called the Give It A Go button. I think you're going to like it. It's pretty cute. So, you know, for a long time now, I've sort of had this uh, saying, you know, stay well and grow well since the COVID, because it worked. Stay well and grow well. And that's how I like to end the show, to remind you to stay well, but grow well. Well, uh, the past week, my wife, my child's mother, (laughs) Eden Rose, is two and a half years old now. And I've talked about her, you know, being my gardening pal and all. Well, anyhow, (laughs) Sam calls me into the bedroom. They were laughing, having a good time. And she says, come here, come here, you gotta see this. And she had taught Eden Rose, or Eden Rose came up with it from something she saw, I don't remember how the story goes, but she came up with this saying, and now I have an Eden Rose, give it a go button. So anytime we have a good idea (laughs) and we need to give it a go, you may hear Eden Rose tell us. Give it a go. (laughs) Isn't that the cutest thing you've ever heard? So when it comes to growing vegetables, what do you say, Eden? Give it a go. Or when it comes to rehabilitating, rehabilitating your gardenias, what do you say, Eden? Give it a go. That's right. Give it a go. So that's the give it a go button. I'm glad that I have that because uh, that's going to maybe keep things lively to hear that sweet girl's voice. Mm, Wonderful. All right. Before we get into all this discussion about uh, naming plants and how plants get their names and what's important because, you know, there are those common names those common names that we uh, like to call plants. But then the scientist and the botanist, the taxonomist, the people who give these things a name, they've put these very difficult names, particularly Latin sounding, even though most of them are not Latin words. They sound like Latin and sometimes are hard to to say, pronounce. We're going to get into the discussion of that, but I've got to remind you, because this is timely, this is timely. You know, peonies... Peonies are one of my favorite plants, favorite perennials, herbaceous perennials, of course. Those peonies die to the ground every year. They pop up in late winter, early spring, and they bloom wonderful for a handful of weeks. Now, we have talked about peonies on some previous episodes, uh, some previous shows, so if you've missed out on peony discussion, you can always find every episode of New Southern Garden here on WRWH 93.9 FM, online at NewSouthernGarden.com, so be sure to check out the website. Also, find us on Facebook and Instagram, and all of your favorite podcasting apps on your smart devices. So, there is plenty of peony discussion, but I do want to give you a reminder, or if you don't have peonies but someone you know does, there's something we want to do right now that's very critical because the peonies are finishing up their blooming. Now, of course, some peonies bloom earlier, some bloom in the middle of early spring, and some bloom in the later part of early spring. And so the later blooming peonies that we grow here in the south are about finished, their petals are falling. There's just a handful of petals holding on to the stems of the peonies at the nursery, and we're starting to see the seed pods becoming developed right in the center of where those petals used to be. You will see big capsule-like projections. I don't know. Big uh, capsule-like seed pods. And those right there are going to be drawing a lot of energy out of your plant, particularly out of the root system. And if those seed pods are allowed to remain and develop, then you will sort of be losing energy to the overall plant. Well, when it comes to peonies, most of us are growing them for blossoms. Big blossoms, showy blossoms, colorful blossoms, and also fragrant blossoms. So what we need to do, unless you want to save the seed of your peony plants for any reason, uh, if you want to breed peonies, that would be a great reason uh, to uh, to allow those seed pods to develop and ripen and mature. However, for most of us, we just want to produce the flower. And now that the flower is gone, we need to tell the plant to stop sending energy to the seed pod, because it will store a lot of energy In those seeds so it can procreate right it can uh, provide progeny and offspring to the world but for us who just want to enjoy flowers it's best to remove them now as a matter of fact with any of your peonies you can remove those flower uh, seed pods excuse me you can remove those seed pods from the plant at any point after they're done blooming and go ahead and give your peony a well-balanced but slow-release fertilizer because the next few weeks, all right, the next few weeks are going to be critical to the health and development of flowers for next year. And here's the reason why. Number one, what the plant is going to be doing is going to, uh, if you remove those seed pods, if you remove the seed pods, the plant won't send energy to the seed pod anymore because the seed pod has been um, removed from the plant. But instead the plant will be sending energy to the root system, okay, to the large tuberous-like rhizomes below the earth. I think technically they're a tuber, not a rhizome, but uh, don't call me out on that. (laughs) So those tubers and rhizomes, I mean the roots of peonies are fleshy, kind of like dahlias. You know how the dahlia roots look when you pull them out of the bag that you got at the box store in the early part of spring? Those very fleshy roots are really what make up the peony plant. And the stronger, more developed a root system, then the stronger a plant you will have, the more stems you will have, the more blossoms you will have, the bigger the blossoms you will have. And so it's critical now that we don't allow the plant to support those seed pods unless you need the seed for some reason. But rather, allow the plant to send the energy to the root system. Because as soon as we get to the dog days of summer. Okay, folks, it may be as early as late July, just a couple of months away. It may be as early as August. It depends on how the how the weather hits us. But as it gets warmer and hotter, drier, maybe even more humid, you're gonna find that your peony leaves start to turn yellow. You may think they're dying, because eventually those yellow leaves will become black and brown leaves. <laughs> And you'll think, oh, no, my peony is dead. It never fails. Every summer I get messages about brown and yellow leaves on the peony and, oh, no, I'm killing it. Well, you're not killing it. They're just going dormant, okay? They can't handle, they don't love, I should say, they. the plant, the root, the tuber can handle being underground, uh, the summer conditions. Because they don't like to stay uh, too wet. They don't mind the dry. But the leaves themselves start to shrivel away, shrink away. The tuber sort of sucks all the juice and all of the good nutrition and water out of the leaf. That's why it's turning yellow and brown. And it's storing it down in the root system to go dormant, to hibernate, right? Except these babies hibernate for a long winter. They have a long winter's nap because they don't love our very hot, dry, humid summers. So with that in mind, you've got a few weeks with your peonies to make sure that they're getting nutrition from fertilizer that you're adding and also not supporting seed pods that can take away a lot of energy from that root system. So again, in summary, this time of year, I had to talk about it this week because I noticed that pretty much all the peonies have done their thing for the year as far as blooming goes. What we need to do with our peonies, usually it's right after Mother's Day that this happens, We want to snip off the seed heads. We call that deadheading, right? You don't have to remove any of the leaves. You just want to remove literally the tip right where that flower used to be. You may cut back to the closest node or wherever a side uh, leaf is below that. But remove those seed pods. And then, of course, we're going to use a slow-release fertilizer, It doesn't necessarily have to be high in nitrogen. Some people believe, and there is some support to this, that if we over-fertilize peonies with nitrogen, we get a pretty plant, but not many buds. So make sure we have a well-balanced, because your peony does need some nitrogen, but it also needs phosphorus, potassium, the rest. Now, if you'd like to increase the organic matter around your plant, you could throw on some mushroom compost. You could throw on some organic matter if you're making compost at home. You can mulch around that right now. That mulch will help to keep the soil temperature moderated so that it doesn't get too hot as summer gets along, and that may actually help your peony look better for longer. But just know that after you've done these things, at some point in the late summer when things are getting hot, things are getting unbearable for even us the peony will retreat and don't remove those stems those dry brown stems after uh, the peony has retreated underground completely i don't like to remove them until i can wiggle the leaf or wiggle the stem and it separates cleanly from the plant now sometimes that may not be until next year when the new stems come from the root But the reason I don't like to do that is because the peony stem will become quite hollow. And if we make a cut on that peony stem and don't let it naturally come away from the root, then that uh, hollow peony stem can be a source for water to hang out over winter. Uh, Water, of course, in winter will freeze. And you may have some freezing down at the stem level because it's channeled itself or rather have freezing at the root level because it's channeled itself, the water has channeled itself through the stem, that hollow stem. And so I like for plants because they will do this. Plants will naturally sever off dead material and they will cleanly heal themselves and you can pull that leaf away and there's no scar, there's no wound that we have inflicted with pruning shears. So yes, they may look kind of gnarly over winter but all winter long you may be wiggling those stems to see if they cleanly separate and remove themselves from the root that's down below so i wanted to talk about peonies today because we've got a very timely activity to do you can do it this weekend you can get out there and you can uh, check on your peonies making sure that they are getting their fertilizer getting their little seed pods removed, and of course, maybe even remulching and whatnot. And I know you can do it, and Eden Rose even knows
0: give that, <laughs> that you
1: can give that peony care a go. So, l- we're going to have to talk about names, but we're getting really close to a break. Pl- uh, plant names. I do have some notes and some thoughts about plant names, and I think that um, what I'd like to do is sort of take you back... To one of my plant classes in college at the University of Georgia. And when we get back from this break, I'm going to uh, read a little excerpt from a book that one of my professors wrote about plant names. He was always very, uh, uh, very appealing when it came to dealing with plant names, because some of them are intimidating, but he made it actually a little more fun. So when we get back, all about plants and their names. Well, all right, gang, we're really coming down to the wire on today's program. This is the last segment of today's show, and as always, it goes by so quickly. Uh, So I did promise you before the break that we're going to talk about plant names. You know, everything in this world has a name. That's what we humans love to do. If you read the scriptures, uh, that was our job. God told man to go and name all the animals, and we've done that with pretty much everything. Now, in the plant world, there are two main types of names of plants, right? They're, well, I mean, any plant could have many names. But generally, we break it down into scientific or botanical names, which are the ones that are really hard to say and generally sound like some form of dead language like Latin. And the others are common names, which means that they actually may be very localized. I'll give you an example. So uh, a dear friend of mine came into the nursery and asked me, said, "Uh, do you have any high geraniums? I said, what? She said, high geraniums, high geraniums, high geraniums. I said, I don't know what a high geranium is. I said, I wonder if it's, you mean hydrangea? No, my mama called them high geraniums. And I said, well, it sounds like it could be hydrangea or it sounds like it could be a geranium that is growing in too many weeds. If you catch my drift, a high geranium, I don't know. But it turned out, I pulled up some pictures and showed some plants and it was a hydrangea. But her mother called them high geraniums for, well, who knows why. But the the point is, names help us identify and easily communicate as long as we can communicate with each other and know what we're talking about. So every time I talk to my good friend now about high geraniums, I know, even though she says it that way, that I am talking and she is talking about hydrangeas. So I'd like to read an excerpt from one of my college books from the University of Georgia. Actually, when the professor I had, Dr. Alan Armitage, in herbaceous perennials, which of course we love to talk about on this program, those plants that love to come back year after year and provide us foliage and blossom power. Well, he wrote a very thick book about herbaceous perennials, but in the beginning of it, he talks about names. And he talks about... Um, Common names in particular. Here's what he says. He says, I like common names. Names like cardinal flower, resurrection lily, pussy toes, and blackberry lily are far more interesting than Lobelia cardinalis, Lycoris sanguamer, I can't even say these names, <laughs> Antenaria diocia, and Bellum canda chinensis. He says, they also bring with them part of the history of discovery and the use of the species. Lily of the Valley tells more about the plant um, that I'm about to buy than Convallaria mad- majalis. While lungwort describes a philosophy of naming plants much better than does Pulmonaria officinalis. Common names may describe the flower, such as Pincushion Flower, also known as Scabiosa. Leaves Spotted Geranium, Geranium maculatum. The origin. Persian Buttercup, which is Ranunculus Asiaticus, medicinal properties like Self-Heal or Prunella Vulgaris, or the Discoverer Stokes Aster, which is Stokesia. Unfortunately, the same common name may be used for more than one species or a single species may be known by several common names, depending on the area of the country, I have heard arguments from purists that common names are irrelevant and their use should not be encouraged. What nonsense, he says. If one wants to see the demise of gardening, keep making it complicated. Gardening is way too complicated as it is with, what, 30 cultivars of that and 10 of that, names that are unpronounceable even by Professor Higgins. Gardeners and professionals should encourage common names. They make what we do so much more user-friendly. And I think that is the truth. And this is coming from, you know, an individual who is a celebrity in horticulture, if you will. He's written the books on many types of plants, including these herbaceous perennials. But you see the kind of fun that he can have with common names. He doesn't shy away from using them. If you want to call your plants high geraniums instead of hydrangea, Go ahead, (laughs) as long as we know what we're talking about. Now, I do want to say, sometimes people say, I don't know how to pronounce that botanical name. I don't know uh, if I'm saying this right. Well, I remember in class that the same professor, uh, Dr. Armitage, that he did explain to us, and he writes a little further here. Let me give you some of these notes about pronouncing these botanical names. He says, most people like to pronounce names with some degree of confidence. Scientific names can be intimidating, and often we will not say them for fear of sounding ignorant. Right? Isn't that us? (laughs) like, Like when I was reading from his book, I couldn't even pronounce them all. But like anything else, pronunciation is something that one feels confident with only with continued use. Okay, that's true. If scientific names are seldom part of one's gardening vocabulary, we will always stumble and stutter. I have provided pronunciation guides. Well, he talks about what's in his book. But here's what he says. Let's get real. Does it really matter if paniculata is pronounced paniculata or paniculata? He says, I prefer to pronounce stokesia as stokesia in recognition of the man who found it, Dr. John Stokes, for whom the genus was named. However, stokesia is commonly used and equally understood. So here is the important part. And I remember him telling this, this in class. Get the syllables in the right order, then fire away. <laughs> Don't worry about sounding silly. It is only the garden snob who continually tries to correct you. And who needs snobs in a garden? And I could not agree 100% or more, 150%. Because it's not about saying the plant right or making sure, you know, I mean, maybe you have some friends who are part of a gardening group. Maybe they're master gardeners. I'm not saying anything bad. Maybe they're part of the um, uh, gardening club or whatever, and they have the right pronunciation uh, for Arctistopheles. Well, doesn't matter how we really say it, as long as we know what we're talking about. Again, if you want to call hydrangea high geranium, Go right ahead. If you want to say paniculata rather than uh, paniculata, doesn't really matter. Whenever we're pronouncing names, I always think about what I learned uh, in Spanish class in high school. You know, uh, since these are Latin-sounding names, these botanical names, instead of saying an a, say an ah. So paniculata, <laughs> because the English. Of course, the English vocabulary has the short A sound and the sh- and the long A sound, but many of these Romantic languages use the long A, so use the A, ah, use the E, eh, use the E, those kinds of things, if you want to make it a little easier. But the thing is, is there's no point in trying to bicker about how to say a name. Let's talk about the joy of growing the plant rather than the frustration of how to say it. So... When it comes to common names, they are wonderful. Why? Because they can describe to us what the plant looks like, where it came from, who may have found the plant, and many other reasons. Those botanical names don't tell us a whole lot unless we're looking at one of these college books like I have on my shelf. So let's enjoy saying the name, but more importantly, let's enjoy growing the plant. After all, that's what it's about in the garden, growing, growing. So when it comes to saying botanical names what would we say eden rose give it, a go. give it a go just try to say those botanical names but definitely use those common names because they are so wonderful and so descriptive well for new southern garden and wrwh this is nathan wilson hope you stay well grow well and grow a, grow a lot right eden give it
0: a go we'll see
1: you next week